0: This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit per second network connections, Intel E5 processors, and top of the line hardware to run your servers on. It deploys Linux in seconds from a Linode cloud and you can choose your Linux distribution and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe, and a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, plumbing, scaling, and everything else you would want. So get the most out of your Linux node by checking them out at linode.com or devchat.tv slash linode. Hello, welcome to React Native Radio, episode 84. I'm your host, Nader Dabit. Today on our panel, we have Gant Laborde. Hey, everybody. And today our special guest is Orta Therox, and Orda is uh, working with RT. Welcome to the show, Orda. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Going good. Good to have you. Uh, I've I've seen you around a lot. First time I think I've ever gotten to to sit down and talk to you, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So um, we're going to be just discussing a lot of things today. It's going to center at first around, you know, what is going on at Artsy with React Native, kind of what all you all are doing, not only internally but uh, open source-wise. We'll also talk a little bit about what you personally are kind of working on, but can you give us a quick overview of kind of how you landed at Artsy and Kind of what you're interested in, I guess.
1: Yeah. um, So I joined Artsy about seven years ago, which is, you know, an entire lifetime in our industry. And Artsy was about 10 people at that time. We're about 200 now. We were, you know, it's the idea of trying to bring the art world online. And the way that we do it is by having this process called the the Art Genome Project, where, like, human beings will connect every single artwork that's uploaded onto Artsy together and say, like, these connect over maybe like 200-ish kind of tags and um, to connect them all and make it really easy to find new things. So Artsy uh, originally was, you know, like any old startup, you're trying to get something done. Um, and after a few years, we started realizing that, yes, this idea of bringing the art world online is working. And we started like shifting our culture a little bit internally to a kind of, uh, we call it now, open source by default. Um, But we used to, you know, just ship, you know, the occasional libraries of side projects and try and bring those in house. But eventually we managed to move to a point where every single front end project is entirely done in the open. So that is like we make issues and pull requests and everybody can see the entire process in building the iOS apps, the websites and some of the like microservices around it. But not all of them. The back ends tend to be the things that we don't open
0: source. So everything that you kind of ship is actually open source, including all the internal, I mean, like even the internal like website, I wouldn't say internal website, but like the main website, all of that is open source. Yep, all of that's entirely open source. That Uh, is interesting. Do you ever have any issues with like, have you ever submitted anything that exposed any security vulnerabilities or anything like that? uh, No, actually,
1: Uh, (laughs) which is funny, right? So. For the iOS apps, for example uh, and for the websites, when we move them from private to open source, we literally delete it to git history we like they they go through like a pretty like serious vetting process in order to try and find every single secret inside them. But once you get to a point where you have a process around like your projects being open source and just working on them, it becomes quite easy to not accidentally ship secrets in part <laughs> because like you know, we already have all these processes for, for making sure that we have, like, production and staging secrets being kept separate from your source code. Uh, we had to build a bunch of that infrastructure for iOS, but on the web stuff, that's that was all really, really easy. I don't think we've ever accidentally, like, leaked anything. The only things that we could consider, like, secrets that go out are, like, we use GraphQL, so our entire schema is public. But that just shows that it exists. It doesn't really tell you, you know, the responses or what, what it does.
0: That's so cool and, and and that's really cool because you're going out of your way and spending extra time to kind of make this available because it would be much easier of course not to do that at all. That was that question was there just because it was the first thing that kinda of popped into my mind. But uh what you just kind of explained definitely, you know, answers the question. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it, it takes a, it.
1: It's worth digging on one more thing. Like this process was like not an overnight thing. Like we did it over the course of three years. We would take small applications and start them open source by default, and then eventually start going back to the larger projects um, to eventually be like, so this one was a success, this one was a success, and this one was a success. So let's just take the Artsy website and turn it open source. Let's take the Artsy iOS app, and uh, that was what we ended up doing rather than just being like click our fingers. And today we are open source by default.
0: Right. Um, and and you mentioned about artsy, it's like bringing the art community online, but what exactly does artsy do? So, I mean, i am looking on the website now you can like get in contact with galleries. You can look at artwork exactly like what do people come there to do? And, um, how has that changed since you first started working there? Uh, so it's changed. Oh, let's. I'll say what it is
1: today. Um, Artsy represents um, basically the art world online. So that is galleries, fairs, auctions, institutions, um, and we try to like take all of these, uh, all of these, like you know, how do I describe that? <laughs> so Artsy is a a website and an iOS app that takes all of these existing. Um, infrastructure from the art world so that is galleries fairs institutions and auctions and brings them online and the reason that we do this is first for discoverability so there's a whole lot of art out there that if you don't live in new york city you probably never get to see um, and the second is that we can make you know we can make it feasible for people to actually purchase artworks uh you know without actually having to go and see it and this is uh, like really part of the core infrastructure so Galleries pay us a subscription fee to be on the artsy like website and iOS app. Um, and that's how we make the majority of our money. Um, but we also take a commission on an auction sale. So you can actually like, you know, do a live bid where the guy has the hammer and it's like talking really fast and you can follow it and you like keep bidding on your app. Um, and we make a commission off that. But realistically, we're just trying to bring anything that exists on the outworlds online and to try and create like a consistent platform for all of it.
2: Wow, that's that's insanely cool. Now, now with it being that big, uh, just a question, um, is your company, I mean, well, is, is Artsy remote? Uh, I know for, uh, Eloy Duran works with uh, Artsy as well, correct? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's over in Amsterdam living on a boat. So (laughs) (laughs) so so my question is, um, are are you structuring, you know, not just the company, but the initiatives? Do you find open source works with remote work? Is everybody remote? Is it some people? Um, I think as we were like as developers, we're sort of drawn to how other developers work. Right. So I'd like to hear a little bit of that from you.
1: Sure. Um, I was first hired as a remote engineer, so I was hired over in the UK and now I'm living in New York city. Um, and so there's always been this kind of like ability as a developer to be a remote engineer. The majority of the the rest of the company don't really do remote too much. We have four different locations now, um, like Berlin, London, uh, New York city, and I think Hong Kong. Um, But realistically, as engineers, we are spread out. Um, We're already spread out across multiple floors in the HQ, but there's Amsterdam, London, Portland, uh, New York City, uh, upstate New York. So someone's in the same state, but it's so far away that they just consider themselves remote. Um, And obviously, (laughs) I know, right? Uh, But we structured the way that we work as developers as though we were working on open source repos of each other so it is expected for uh, non mobile repos that you would make a fork and you would send pull requests and you would go through the exact same process as you would contributing to an external library as you would contributing to an internal
2: app or tool yeah and i guess like that really uh fireproofs the process for other people to come in when you do finally open source material. Uh, I just have to ask, with all those locations, what the hell meeting time do you ever have (laughs) for an all team meeting? So for
1: engineers, all team meetings can only happen at 11 o'clock in a New York City time zone. (laughs) (laughs) So like the the kind of front end committee that I run, it's like that can only ever happen at that time. If it doesn't happen at that time, No one's coming, well, like a partial set. We just don't bother then. Gotcha, (laughs) gotcha.
2: So, I mean, is that part of why? So you have, by the way, a very, very impressive uh, GitHub page, um, lots of commits all the time, lots of organizations you're a part of. And um, I think you might have mentioned, but I want to make sure that, uh, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure from your own words here, getting added to these different organizations, that's almost like a byproduct of how you guys work, right? I mean, being part of Jest and Storybook. Yep, yep exactly. Um, so, so a lot of this comes from a
1: native development um, perspective, which is any dependency that you add is a dependency you own. And so that is like, um, if, 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 we, if we decide to use Jest as our test runner, someone on our team has to feel confident enough to be able to like actually go in and change the source code in order to fix a problem for us. And so we have that on every single project that we're generally dependent on. So that from a big scale, that's like TypeScript, React,
2: uh, Relay, Jest, Storybooks. It's actually very beautiful. I think I'm gonna have to tweet you on that. Any dependency you add is a dependency you own. Nice. Uh, So if you, so my long tail of
1: open source tends to be projects that that you know we depend on at RTC that the original authors have moved on from. Um, and so they tend to be things that I just kind of maintain and you know take people's pull requests and ship a release every so often, but don't tend to actually do any active development myself. Uh, a good example of this is um for we we originally used flow for um for our JavaScript. And I looked at the tooling for Flow in Visual Studio's Code and felt that uh, it wasn't quite up to snuff. I spent a uh, you know a few weeks updating it and again you know making it work, and then eventually we ended up moving to TypeScript. But I still maintain the Flow for Visual Studio's Code extension. Uh, wow, <laughs> yeah, and it's you know it's just like handling issues and just accepting pull requests and and, and shipping the release every so often. But it's like it's just you know if I don't do it, maybe no
2: one will, right? Well, I really like that stack. So, you said VS Code, which <clears throat> how much does it hurt saying how great Microsoft is now? <laughs> <Different world. laughs> yeah, uh, so VS Code, TypeScript, of course, uh, yep. I, and I, it's so great over flow. Uh, now, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I probably. Hey, pissed man. Off. Now, sorry. <laughs> hey, that book right? Literally, not a I love it. Uh,
0: show. You know, are <laughs> like
2: non-biased here. <laughs> yeah, very unbiased. But uh, but yes, uh, I I do like that choice there. Now now, considering, let's go back the other way. Have you tried Reason ML um, or anything like that? Sort of coming back into the the fold of Facebook's software there.
1: Uh, so I've not tried it. I keep my eyes open, but I am very much a like I, I, I'm a pragmatic programmer. I want to just reuse things I already know. And moving to JavaScript was pretty trivial. But I think it would be quite hard for me to pitch to anybody in Artsy that we should move to like Reason or you know these func- purely functional languages. I'm sure you get a lot of advantages from that kind of stuff. But the trade off of like having one project in this crazy language, I don't think it would fly today and the culture of artsy right now
0: you know that's that's a really interesting topic um because i see the advantages of reason as well but you know at what point does what's the tipping point for something like that to where people that are already using an existing language and are already being useful and being efficient and productive like where's the tipping point for another language to come in like reason and kind of take over the space of that yeah this is like (laughs) so that exact question is the one
1: that we asked ourselves and ended up moving to React Native, right? Because, you know, at w- what point was moving from Objective-C and Swift to JavaScript a good call? And we weren't even sure then. and Like, we're sure now, but it took a year for us to eventually decide that that was the right call back then.
0: Yeah, and, 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 and I think with React Native, it may be easier to kind of switch over. Well, maybe not. I don't know. It just seems that... Because JavaScript has been there for so long, and um, Reason is kind of new, um, I'm, I'm wondering. I, I see, I see companies using Reason. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, if if it's going to be um, a year from now, if it's going to be five years from now, or if it will be ever that it becomes kind of the next big thing, and, and maybe not Reason itself, but maybe something like that. Um, again, have you all kind of considered it Infinite Red? uh we're we're in love with the idea of typescript sort of for the
2: same reasons um mentioned before now no we love functional programming but you can do functional paradigms and try to enforce them in in sort of a you know what the same reason I, I and then this is uh this is a real quick answer for it. you could always slowly turn up the knob on how much of it your your team's comfortable with same thing happened with uh typescript for us You'd slowly turn on features and get more and more strict, but you could have always mixed TypeScript with JavaScript. Well, so what same thing happens here is that you can slowly turn on more and more functional paradigms inside the code and in code review. So it's a lot easier for us to do it in TypeScript and then bring in libraries like Ramda or something else and sort of like enforce the concepts first. And then maybe one day we'll just flip a switch and who knows, maybe we'll take a look at something like that.
0: So can yeah. you tell us about React Native at Artsy and how it became a thing? You mentioned that you were already using iOS. Did you have an Android app as well, or is that why you went to React Native or are you still only iOS?
1: Uh no, we're still only iOS. So um okay, so again, we're a team of, of like pretty serious tool hackers. So on our team there's someone who worked on compilers uh before working at Artsy. Uh I've been running a dependency manager, the iOS, the iOS dependency manager now for six years. Um, and we were just getting to a point where like our iOS app was extremely slow to work in. And we, we first tried to decouple ourselves from having the same kind of deadlines as the web. So it would generally take two, two mobile engineers in order to make the same feature as a web engineer. And there was, you know, double the amount of web engineers as the were mobile engineers. So it was like practically impossible to try and A, keep pace uh, and B therefore have similar deadlines. So we started, um, we started like two experimental projects. One was to just say, let's see if we can just use Swift to actually improve like the speed of iteration, um, and using like native tooling everywhere we can. And Alloy, uh, who got mentioned earlier, he pitched like I think React Native is, yes, it's very, very young at this, start, at this point, because this is like close to two years ago. Um, but I think it could work. And so it took him maybe three months to actually make a, a, single, uh, a single page for Artsy. But once he'd done that and he'd set up all the foundations, then um, we quickly added two more and we could actually directly compare the kind of the native version of it and the um React native version of it. And the React Native version was like considerably less code.
2: Uh,
1: and that's in part because of relay. Um, but it was also considerably simpler and that's b- because of React. Um, and so we started looking through the code base uh to try and see, you know, what what are the trade-offs that we're making. Uh the first one was really obvious, which was there is six hundred and 80 dependencies added to our app just in adding React Native. So that's just you know the node modules required, uh, which meant we had to like kind of give up on our idea of owning every dependency we 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 have, or markedly vetting every single dependency that we that we introduce. Um, but at the trade-off of like developer speed and what we were hoping was. Um, like getting to a point where our culture would be the same for mobile engineers as it would be for the rest of engineers in the company. So we called that process de-siloing the mobile team. Um, and that was that took about a year uh, for us to truly take out uh, a, like a unique culture in the mobile engineering section of, of Artsy. And at this point now, like engineers across the board will ship features to the iOS app and to the
0: website whenever they want. Wow, so many questions. Um, I guess <laughs> the first one was, how did the uh, the native engineers feel about this? Were they on board um, in that 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 conversation there? So I think realistically, only one person was on board on day one, and that
1: was uh, Alloy who was like, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try it, it's gonna, it's gonna be okay, we'll see how it works out. Um and I think the rest of us slowly became on board only after we actually had the chance to use it pragmatically. Um like it was definitely a I have a vision, I'm gonna give this a shot. Um Alloy describes it as like he looked at relay and GraphQL and React Native and just kind of said, This is like a dream stack for the kind of things that we're building at Artsy. We already have a GraphQL uh, like app set up. A lot of our problems are specifically solved by this stack and uh, in comparison to the work that we're doing right now we're really struggling to find really good abstractions that can be shared across screens and this kind of you know react native approach could really work uh, and so basically every single mobile engineer has been persuaded not by like his not by a stick but by a carrot which is. And nobody wants to work in the native side of the code anymore because it takes so long to do anything in comparison to the web to the like react native setup our react native setup is so like it's so warm and fuzzy and nice to be in that like you don't want to work in this kind of cold harsh Xcode
0: environment anymore so I guess the native engineers were they was there any turnover or any additional hires when you kind of went into react Native as in were there any like iOS developers? Or, or, um, I guess I guess really I'm interested in. Were there any JavaScript developers that kind of um, were not doing React Native but kind of jumped into React Native and were very comfortable with it? And then the second question was would be like, were there any iOS developers that were like, you know, I don't want to do this and maybe like left or anything like that?
1: Uh, so the mobile team has never had someone leave ever at Artsy. So, wow. so we're, we're doing pretty well on that. Um, on the other side, so initially, no, like, you know, m- me and Ally have experience with JavaScript just in general, you know, jQuery style. Um, but and so we really did build it in, in on our own in a kind of corner uh, as an experiment uh, and then for kind of brought the results to the rest of the company. Um, this, So, it, it, yeah, it's probably a good place to explain that. What we ended up doing is we created a library that uh, contains all our you know React native components that can be consumed by our app. Um, and what we wanted to do with that was to create this kind of perfect environment for writing React uh, components. Uh, so once we knew what we wanted in there, so we iterated with like Flow versus TypeScript, we iterated with Atom versus VS Code, um, Storybooks versus you know just writing them willy nilly. Um, and eventually came to the conclusions about what we like. Uh, uh, Apollo versus Relay at the time, like this was you know a year and a half ago. So trade-offs have changed now, but um, all those things, all those decisions were made at that for this project. And then we kind of brought the exact same infrastructure over to the web. So there's now a library that is like very similar to what we have on our React Native that that has the TypeScript Relay Storybook setup that. Uh, that means that any engineer can jump between those two projects with basically, you know, very little, uh, you know, development costs. You don't have to be an iOS engineer now to contribute to the iOS app. I mean, it helps because you have to understand the, you know, react natives view versus div, but it, it's not crazy different. Uh, and so that's how we introduced it to the rest of the company. Uh, so the culture was. It was first just purely mobile devs with very little JavaScript experience, like actually testing the water with very fresh eyes. And then we kind of brought those ideas over to the web and kind of consolidated with them because they obviously have like very valid opinions because they've been
0: doing this way longer than we have. So um, the choice of Relay seems kind of interesting to me because I don't really know – a lot of companies that have been on our show that use relay. So this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about like why you chose relay. I know you're using GraphQL already. What's the advantage of also having relay as part of the stack? So I like to think of relay as being just another compiler
1: and your stack of like compilation steps that can give you like, like good feedback about whether some the code you have is correct. So, um, we use relay, uh, in In kind of two forms the the first form is to enforce all of the schemas locally um, so an example of that is uh, because we because relay forces you to download the schema have it included in your source files and um, so it can do the proper lookup for when you have a component this is the relay fragment that you know like a GraphQL fragment that corresponds to that relay component um, We can actually do all these kind of compilation checks uh, at at dev time that the data that you're you're expecting is actually the data that you're gonna get. Uh, So one of the hard problems that we're constantly trying to figure out at Artsy right now is how do we make sure that the types throughout our entire APIs uh, correspond to the actual types that exist inside the database. Uh, Artsy was originally a MongoDB. Uh, Artsy still is a MongoDB. uh, So it's completely untyped. So we're still struggling with that. But Relay helps us there by like, enforcing the GraphQL schema at the app level too. On the other side, um, I find it it's, it's really nice and strict. So when we make, you know, TypeScript style refactors, um, like Relay will tell us if we've done anything wrong. And we want our, like client apps to be um, solid and stable, especially in the native side where, you know, we can take, we can ship to the app store and it could be like many, many days before we get a bug fix in. Um, and so, like a, a lot of the advantages of Relay come from this kind of like strictness on a client side. The you know it's also enforced a little bit on strictness on the server side. Um, Relay extends the GraphQL spec with a thing called connections um, that we kind of recommend internally as you know how you should paginate through any data um in such a way that like we can just make really really easily composed um components that handle pagination trivially and when the majority of our screens are just like paginate through this list of artists paginate through this list of artworks um it, it it becomes very easy to just kind of whip up a screen quite quickly when all you have to do is say use this connection uh take out these bits of detail these bits of um the actual re- returned values from GraphQL and that will uh, hook everything together for you. And then you also get the compiler warnings as you build that out bit by bit. So like when con- like when everyone contrasts Relay with Apollo. So Apollo, on the other hand, is like smart and simple whereas Relay, on the other hand, is much more complex because it's built for a very big company that has a very large amount of engineers um, whereas Relay is totally obviously built for these kind of like artsy sized companies um, where you have uh, you know you have a GraphQL spec but you just want some f- the ability to just paginate through a list so here's what the params look like here's whatever it is and you can just do it um, whereas Relay would require like three or four files making sure the compiler is up to date with the schema and things like that so there's, a, there's definitely a, a like Relay is good for this uh, but the things that Relay is really good for is like solid mature stable and like teams that were happy to have more process in order to actually be more sure of their end results so does that make sense
0: yeah it makes sense conceptually i've never really worked with relay but um i always hear you know through the grapevine or whatever that it's more complex but um i've never really actually looked looked at, at the specification and implementation. So it's interesting yeah. to kind of hear um, from that. But I guess I do have a question. You mentioned that you you know, you know moved from iOS native to React native and um, you were able to then use you know GraphQL and Relay. Was there anything that had to change on the back end for you to kind of make that switch or um, was it more about using the existing back ends? But it seems like I'm sure that the, um, the back end for the iOS app has to be slightly different than the web app. Were you able to just maybe just throw in some resolvers or something like that to make it all work? So in this case, uh, we kind of piggybacked on some existing web infrastructure.
1: Um, the web team has been building a kind of a meta API. So we GraphQL is like maybe two years old also. It's like pretty new technology still. Uh, we're still trying to figure out like how to do it ourselves internally. Um, but we thought that like, one of the best approaches to using GraphQL was to have a single GraphQL instance that calls out to our multiple APIs and kind of consolidates the results. And so the backend developers can continue to deal with just you know, pure data. Um, and we on the front end can own this meta API that we can change at runtime and try and move uh, you know, logic that needs to go in both the web and the front end, front end of iOS up into a same place. So we didn't actually have to do much there. Um, We just do, like, this is, we're not on a big rewrite. Um, We're just adding screen by screen. And because web was so much faster than us, like they had genuinely built out a bunch of the GraphQL for the initial screens that we wanted. We only really had to add some of the more strict relay things, um, you know, indicating whether a type is null or not, or adding connections instead of just uh, an an array with a, a page number. Um, and that was basically it, I think. We really added more of the process than just iOS moving to using React Native on our GraphQL instance. You
2: should ask about TypeScript, vs. Flow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's a sore spot. I'm not bringing that one back up. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> thank you so much for telling us about GraphQL. To this day, I still... Um, I have a, about 50 web pages on my to read list. <laughs> right. And it helps inspire me a bit more to, to, to read a bit on that. Um, especially, do you have any high profile open source projects we should be taking a look at? Um, I know that you have a lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, when I look at the open source projects that you list uh, that you've pinned to your board. I find these extremely interesting as well. So uh, I see your DNA is available. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> I, I can clone you and just ask a clone <laughs> about GraphQL, right? But uh, also, you you have two of them pinned at the top about danger. So I guess first is um, one is uh, a, a bit about. Do you have any repos that you recommend for those of us kind of catching up on GraphQL? And then two, I uh, definitely would love to talk about this danger thing. Okay, so GraphQL wise, um, right
1: now probably the best resource for. GraphQL information, it's Graphcool. The you can, the spec is really readable. Like I've I've read the spec um, because GraphQL is just a spec with language implementations. Like internally we use GraphQL in Ruby, in Scala and in uh, JavaScript. We have a main, uh, Artsy has a repo called Metaphysics. That's just artsy slash metaphysics. And that's our entire GraphQL uh, API. That's the big, API, the one that represents every single um, every single API inside Artsy, and that's where we do the majority of our GraphQL work. Uh, If you're really interested in like, if you already know quite a lot about GraphQL, then the thing that I'd recommend looking into is is GraphQL stitching, which is something that we have both uh, experimented with now and sort of considered to be where we see like microservicey GraphQLs going. Um, so like our metaphysics has the ability now for one of our microservices to, um, to have it provide a GraphQL schema and then metaphysics will take that GraphQL schema from an external API and stitch it into its own API. So suddenly you have this, um, you don't just define the GraphQL schema for all of your uh, apps, you actually have each app define the GraphQL schema and then the central one, its job is to just say how they connect to each other. So that's something that I think is super interesting that like you couldn't really do without GraphQL, and um, that's where some of the future of GraphQL is heading. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, on the other side, Danger is um, so I've I <laughs> I am the fifteenth most active person on GitHub in the open source community, <laughs> um, <laughs> according to this gist that does all this like stats on on what people do. Um, and it's actually, and so it becomes really hard to maintain this many repos and respond to this many issues and to handle review on this many pull requests. They usually get, you know, like in the 10s
0: per day. That just um, seems so overwhelming. I'm I'm super curious about how you handle that. So danger is one of the best ways that I have of
1: handling that. Um, so danger is this idea of uh, your pull request usually has, you know, linting stages uh it does uh, it checks to see if your tests pass uh, and then a human being looks through the code and is like uh yeah 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 this list looks like i expect it to do um danger adds one more step into that process which is uh, allowing you to kind of automate what wrote tasks so the kind of boring bits of of code review so an example being ios apps nearly always have a changelog um, you know, I don't want to have to remember every on every single pull request that you need to add a chain code entry. That just sucks. That's just not fun and um, nobody really wants to be doing that and everyone feels like, you know, everyone feels a little bit like an idiot when you forget something like that. So instead what we did was built a generic system for creating rules um, around like what your pull request should look like. So some good examples are like um, you know, there's one that there's a rule that checks that your Jest tests have, have passed or failed. And if they've failed, then it will take the results and it will pass, it will put them into a message in your in your PR. So you don't have to go through CI to go and find that exact, um, the exact message, find what test oh, it was. Nice. It just puts it in there. And then when you pass those tests, those that message will be deleted. So it will only be there temporarily and it will keep updating every time you ship a new commit until it goes away. And you can do this for literally anything. I think React Native uses it for like um, you know if you edit some of these files and you need to also edit the documentation. Um, I'm pretty sure Apollo uses it for change blogs, as well as saying like this is a really big PR, so it might not get reviewed. Um, tons of like libraries use pretty similar rules, um, and so we have things like you know plugins that allow you to you know genericize your rules to work across multiple repos. Um and so we have this process where every single artsy repo, uh, you know, first of all it requires changelog entries if there's a change log. Um it checks, it does a spell checking on every markdown document inside your uh inside your repo. So nice. if you make some typos, it'll tell you, it does that on the blog. Uh on the blog it will also do um sort of semantic analysis of your text to say whether you know you're using nouns and um and things like that. So it provides like a really nice feedback system. Uh, and that's what Danger is really about, like creating these rules and kind of iterating on them. And so I've been experimenting with another thing that's like the sequel to Danger called Peril, where it runs on a centralized server. So you can do that on issues. So uh, once you get to a point where you get so many issues, uh, you also kind of want to tell people like, oh, this issue contains the word code. no." code. Contains code signing, so if a if a new issue contains the word code signing, then reply with this generic error. Um, and so I've been building systems that allow you to just you know press a button and automatically add you know JavaScript rules to what happens when someone submits an, an issue to you.
2: That's really really cool. I tell you what, um, does this use um, GitHub apps? Is it, I mean, is it tied into yeah. the GitHub app? Yeah. Uh, is it use uh, Probot? Uh, I've heard like a lot of people are using Node with Probot a bit, or is this like you 100 written from scratch?
1: It's 100 percent written from scratch.
2: Nice. Probot and Danger are like two very similar attempt uh, like
1: approaches to the same idea. Probot's yeah. very much like you know somebody creates this this Probot plugin for you, and then you can use it. Whereas Danger is like here is a set of primitives, and you can create your own rules yeah. on a basis.
2: Yeah, so I mean what's great about it is um where I mean I almost almost see that like Probot's a little bit so freeform. It doesn't give you the direction. They're they're looking for ideas. Yeah. Whereas this you've got a good, you know, it's a bulleted list of by the way, <laughs> you know, don't let somebody come back and have that issue is like, "Hey, the change log hasn't been updated in three releases." Uh, yeah. <laughs> especially since like you said before, you have to you have some projects that you manage where pretty much you just have to play a human element you're not even a consumer of that open source repo anymore yep i think uh, it's pretty complex to keep up with that yep and
1: some of the repos are just done like i've been toying with the idea of now uh, of applying Peril to my own organization like auto if you think of it as an org so that if you know if someone makes an issue on a repo that hasn't had a commit from me in maybe you know 3 or 4 months and I'll just reply straight off with like this project is probably done like you can you you will get a reply but like realistically if you actually want a change you should do it yourself and like that sets cool. expectations
2: yeah it's really hard uh you know that's really good to see like in the open source world one of the things that we have to do is sniff a repo to see if it's still alive or not
1: yeah exactly have
2: to, it's like nobody's touched this in four years is it perfect <laughs> Or is yeah. it just dead? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like this a lot. That's, that's an amazing idea. I think like this extra sort of meta tooling is, is really helpful uh, as far as like communities, especially with big companies like Facebook going open source with so many great tools and artsy going open source with so many great tools. There's, there needs to be, um, sort of like the scaling of Git went up to another level with GitHub, but I feel yeah. like there's this new meta level that you're really kind of addressing here. It's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I get quite a lot of support from GitHub themselves because, you know, the, from their perspective, like, they can't handle every single person's workflow because, you know, GitHub has so many users and so many users have so many different conflicting needs. So building tools like Probot, which is, you know, from GitHub themselves, and Danger, which is, like, you know, a much more, like, Freeform version of 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 Probot, like those are the kind of things that they like genuinely want to encourage because it allows people to say, Well, this is actually my flow, and I can change my flow to work the way that I want without having to make feature requests at github level right, yeah,
0: very cool so how would someone go about building a tool like the one you just mentioned, the um, successor to danger? That sounds pretty complex. Is it something written in, in JavaScript or is that like something written in another language? It's written in TypeScript. Um, it is a case. So, so
1: so Danger is now like two and a half years old. I originally wrote it in Ruby. Um, as we moved to React Native, I realized that I needed a lot of like serious JavaScript experience. So I figured porting Danger to JavaScript was probably a good, a good move for that. Um, and in the process of that, I uh, I knew exactly what needed to be done in order to go from running locally on CI, which Danger does, to running hosted on a like on a box I own that anybody can log into. Um because you know a lot of that's just security and <laughs> trying to figure out like if I if I have these processes uh and like have limitations around certain things, I bet I can get it to run on a server. So it, it honestly it's some of the most complicated code I own, this uh Peril server. Um, it's like super tight, super dense, and I'm still figuring out how to make it less. But it's um, it's open source. It's used by a few people. I think Apollo are moving. Docker's using it. I think internally. Um, and every now and again, I get issues from randos. So it's definitely being used. But it is just a complicated project that eventually I'm probably going to have to charge for, so that people can just like click on, click and add it with like two 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 clicks to any organization. I'd pay for it. Yeah, exactly, I
0: I would pay for it if I didn't have to build it. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess this kind of goes back to the beginning of the conversation we had. What exactly is your role at Artsy? Um, Are you more of, it sounds like you're doing a ton of coding, but are you more like managing other people as well, or what exactly are you doing there? Uh, Right now I consider myself a, a janitor at Artsy um i'm
1: because i'm the highest level like individual compute, contributor uh in the company um but i've definitely managed teams like i managed the mobile team before we decided to de-silo the mobile team um and at this point like my job is has been to find problems at artsy and fix them and sometimes that can be tooling sometimes that can be like culture within the entire like companies, so I built our team navigator, you know, this like internal doc, like website that shows you where people sit and who works for who and what the org chart really looks like, uh, as well as, you know, making sure that the apps chip on time. And, you know, I handled all the node updates when there was a, a CVE pretty recently um, on like anything. I can't remember what it was about, but I had to update some like 0.2 apps up, de- up to like node seven or something. So it, it, it's a little bit, it's quite freeform because I've been here for quite a while um, and otherwise these problems don't really get fixed because, you know, we're at a size where teams have KPIs and, uh, you know, product managers that tell them, you know, this is what we're going to try and do in this time frame, and adding a bunch of uh, extra time to update node versions is definitely not going to uh, help them ship whatever they need to ship. So we added one freeform person to try and fix all those problems.
0: So I think we're kind of getting close on time. Is there anything that you wanted to discuss that we haven't really gone over so far? I don't really
1: think so. I think I think we, we we covered all of like the sort of the major keys on this. Um, you know, Artsy does open source by default and it took us a while to get there. Now we're there, it's kinda nice. It encourages a really nice culture of like everybody feels like they can contribute to large projects. I think almost every like engineer at Artsy has contributed to some sort of like foundational tool. Like we had a, a junior earlier who, uh, you know, contributed to Rake, like the, the, the version of Make for, for Ruby. And like, you know, th- this process of trying to teach your team to act like an open source team permanently really encourages people to be able to like step up into the open source community. Uh, like I wasn't a particularly big contributor before I started working at Artsy, but once I had the ability and the time, I really started to like up my contributions I think a lot of it's just flow. Like I, I wake up in the morning, I check check what pull requests I've been sent, maybe make a release of some arbitrary library or or tool or app, and just go on my day. Um, I take holidays, and they end up being, you know, sometimes white, sometimes a little bit green on my GitHub. A lot of it's just, just getting used to a general flow where you contribute back all the time.
0: Anyone can do it. So like is the uh, I guess the management or the, the higher ups at the company, I mean well, you've been there since there was only ten employees, so I'm assuming that's actually you. <laughs> You're one of those people. <laughs> but um yeah. you know, but of course you have to kind of get sign on from everyone else. That's really cool that they're all on board with this. But it also shows you the success that you've had, that this kind of leads to that type of success. That type of culture is what all yep. the good engineers want to be a part of, right? Yep, yeah, definitely. We
1: never have a problem hiring new engineers whenever we get budget. Uh, the yeah, uh, realistically, it's like if you know where your end goal, you know, where you want to be, and I, you know, me and my CTO's end goal is we want it open source by default. Uh, like we want it to be that you have to argue for closing for you know closing the source of anything rather than the opposite way around. And um, you know, we had to pitch to CFOs, CEOs, CEOs, all these product people, that, you know, who actually care about the product and, and want to make sure it's both safe and that we can can iterate on things, maybe in private sometimes, but maybe in public cover most of the time. Um, encouraging them that it's not a bad thing, and it works out. We have so many ways of being able to show that you know, Artsy as a company is doing great, and that the company is doing fine, even though we do all this open source. And they just we just consider it part of our product, like making a PR to React Native to add TypeScript support. Well, that is just a dependency that we own that we have to do in order to get where we want to be.
0: All right. Well, I think uh, we have time now to go ahead and get to the picks. Gann, do you have any picks today? Yeah, I have two picks.
2: Uh, specifically, the first one, first and foremost, is um, by the time you're hearing this, the... Chain React Conference CFP should be wide open. So uh, Chain React is the US React Native Conference. Um, We've got some keynote speakers, which uh, you will be able to check out. Some really high profile, awesome, amazing people have reached out to us and we've reached out to some people. So uh, if you want to be in the same speakers room and talking with uh, amazing people about React Native, then I highly, highly, highly recommend that you submit to the CFP. There's only about 12 spots available, and last year we had over 60 CFPs. This year we're expecting well over 100. So send as many as you can, the best that you can, and we'd love to have you. Uh, We wish we could have everybody, but it's a two-day conference coming up in July, uh, July 12th and 13th in 2018 in Portland. So if you want to talk about React Native at the U.S. React Native Conference, the CFP is open. Uh, The the other thing, actually, I wanted to talk about is kind of just sort of came up from what we were uh, talking about earlier. There's an awesome list of functional programming in JavaScript. It's um, by, and I'm going to kill his name, S-T-O-E-F-F-E-L, awesome FPJS. So people looking to get more involved with functional programming in JavaScript, uh, there's always an awesome list for it. <laughs> and so there's one specifically on functional programming in JavaScript. Tons and tons of resources. And that would be my
0: second pick. Oh, man, I'm going to have to check that out. Um, on that same note with functional programming in JavaScript, I just finished, well, I just finished a few of the videos in Kyle Simpson's functional light course on front-end masters. Um, it's really good and then he also has a book that's for free online or you can buy it. But But um, concerning Chain React, uh, yeah, I just wanna mention that I went last year and it was the first time they had put it on and it was amazing. Portland's amazing. The way that they kind of set up the conference, everything was just awesome. There were so many awesome people that I got to meet there and I totally recommend going. And if you're listening to this, I know you're interested in React Native. It is like the React Native conference. So definitely check it out. Sweet. Orda, okay. I hope to see you uh,
2: there. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll check out the C for P. You got it. Oh, Orda,
1: do you have any picks today? Um so there's obviously danger, like for a lot of people in the JavaScript community, they probably haven't heard of it. So that's danger.systems and It's my beautiful URL for all the kind of user-facing documentation. Um but I think, I, think you know, I should use my other pick as straight up, you should study GraphQL stitching. That thing is fascinating and deeply, deeply, like, I don't know, future heavy. It feels awesome to, to try and understand how it's been done. Um, that's mostly work by Apollo, the Apollo team right now. Um, and I think it's on a repo
0: called GraphQL tools right now. Great. I'm I'm taking a look now. I think I had seen this blog post a month or two ago, uh, but I hadn't really understood what it's about, so I'm going to have to check it out. Um, I have one pick today. I actually have two picks. My first pick is a book, and I'm kind of late on this. It's been on my to-read list for like a year and a half, maybe longer, and they're about to put a a movie out. Uh, It's called Ready Player One. I just began reading it or actually listening to it on Audible with my son on our way to school. Uh, this month. And like within about five minutes, I was just completely hooked. And now I can't wait to be in the car and listen and, and listen to the book. It's really, really good. Um, and I totally, when I saw the movie was coming out, and I knew I had this book on my to read list, I wanted to go ahead and start it. So I want to read the book and then watch the movie. Um, totally check it out. Um, my second pick is um, React Native Training is going to be in San Francisco and, and New York next month in January of 2018. Um, there are still some tickets available. We sold out the last time we put on these workshops. So I would definitely recommend uh, getting in early if you're interested. Um, if your company wants to send multiple people, uh, reach out to me, um, natter at reactnative.training and we'll shoot you over a discount code. Orta, that wraps up the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I think we really, really... Had a good show. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. That wraps up episode 84 of React Native Radio. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ciao.
2: I think we should all say,
0: bye!